Hello, Dom Knight talking to you on a somewhat dodgy mic. Sorry about that. What we have for you this week is part of a live event that we did on Tuesday, the 4th of April at Giant Dwarf in Redfern. Along with my co-host, Andrew P. Street, our guests were Jacqueline Maley from the Sydney Morning Herald and Chris Taylor from The Chase. We do these uh, first Tuesday of every month. The next one is coming up then on the 2nd of May. That's it, 2nd of May. We've got a wonderful guest locked in already. Tickets available very soon at giantdwarf.com.au. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, hope you enjoy our conversation. Regular episode next week. Um, but let's start the conversation, I think, uh, with Jacqueline, who um, has some first-hand experience of some stuff that I wanted to look at tonight. And that is essentially, well, they're called the alt-right in America. I kind of think of them as the feral right here in Australia. Um, but Jacqueline was at the recent meeting of the Q Society. Did people read her article about that? Um, <laughs> that where I, like, get... I like that kind of, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either that or there are ghosts in the room. It's very exciting either way. You guys all know why it's called the Q Society? This is bizarre. It's because the first meeting was in the suburb Q, like K-E-W. And they don't know how to spell. And they don't know how to spell. <laughs> Spelling? That, that lefty, lefty book-learning, ivory tower-sitting, pencil-pushing nonsense? I thought the answer was going to have more to do with Nostradamus somehow, but anyway. Um, so, Jacqueline, you went to the Q Society. Can you, can you just describe the venue? What, where do they gather if they're not in Q anymore? Well, North Ride. Um, North Ride, there you go. <laughs> An Q easy tram ride from Q. Is <laughs> the obvious answer. Um, I've always had quite nice dealings with North Ride. I grew up on the North Shore. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, was, I bought a ticket to this event, which was at the North Ride RSL. It's the home of the Sky News studio, so it's really yeah, a perfect right. fit. It's got a great industrial park. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so I drove up there, thankfully, as it turned out, with a colleague on, like, a Thursday night. And I was kind of resentful about having to do that, but I thought, you know, this might be a good story. And a lot of... I think a lot of the... Afterwards, a lot of people, or some of the people who were there, said that we snuck in, and that's not absolutely not true. We One does not sneak into North Ride. No. How <laughs> So what was we it like? Came... Did they welcome you? Did you get a little name tag, Jacqueline Maley, SMH? No, it was very... It was Sydney very... Morning Homosexual, please. <laughs> it was very... Um, look, it was very low rent. I mean, the, the North Ride RSL is very sort of humble, humble digs, if you like. Um, it was kind of, you know, they've got the full kind of RSL carpet, you know, low ceilings. It was very bad. Was there a meat raffle? There was no... The, I mean, the food was terrible. Um, was Rodney Rude doing a gig in the door next to It was that kind of a scene. It was that kind of a scene. Everything I keep saying reveals me, to, I guess, to be the snob that they all thought I was anyway. But... Um, um, look, it was very, it was shambolic. It was strange. It went on for a long time. It was very poorly organised. So they had all these kind of series of raffles because the point of the event was to raise money for their um, legal defence. They were defending themselves against a, a, a defamation suit by an anti, uh, by a halal certifier. Politically correct snowflakes on the attack again. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's, they prob were... it's probably Gillian Triggs doing that. Um, yeah, I'm sure she was. She was in there somewhere. Um, but look, look, it was it was very strange. There were like everybody on my table was kind of they, they were very odd people. So some of them. Um, <laughs> in what respect? In what well, respect? Uh, the guy who was sitting next to me was a guy called Bernard Gaynor. Who, um, if you were if you were a barrister or a lawyer, you might know about. He's a serial litigant. He um, there've been articles written about him because he's written. He used to be in the army and he lost his army commission because he did a lot of anti-gay stuff. Are you in, Bernard? Bernard, you up the back somewhere? No? B-Dog? Um, 
He, so, you know, he's a sort of serial pest and a, and a strange serial litigant. Sort of, there were sort of five people on my table who all give you a business card that's got like sort of 20 different strange, um, you know, professions on it. Um, you know, did, did they all say like the human Bernard Gaynor with, with weird sort of... Yeah, the immortal soul. With yeah, the immortal colons soul. Colons and dashes and... Was Malcolm Roberts there is the question he's asking. <laughs> Um, there were a lot of odd people there, just very intense people who'd sit, you know, sit next to you and talk to you about how you know, they were going to win their court case and you know, they, they were battling sure. with the government over this sort of... So thing. Rod Cullerton was there? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Rod Cullerton, who, who still maintains that he's the independent senate, uh, senator from Western Australia, by the way. Actually, can I, can I just say, just oh, in, in parentheses about Rod Cullerton, um, a, a friend of mine uh, works in Parliament House and um, let's Cullen. call him Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I prefer like X Turnbull. He's um, Cullerton. Cullerton has like this is honest to God true. <laughs> Apparently, this is allegedly <laughs> allegedly true. Cullerton has been turning up at Parliament House drunk with with a homemade lanyard. <laughs> And, and apparently the security there are so gentle with him and they're just like, um, you can go into the public gallery if you want. You're no longer authorised to go anywhere else. That's not a real security pass. <laughs> That's actually very impressive. That, Those um, shoes are ducks. You're, you're there, it's not. Because, I mean, with the chaser, we have previously probed expensive security arrangements, Chris, and... Found them wanting at various points in the past. So, um, they should make them in special rooms, shouldn't they? They should just get a supply closet, put a little crayon notice on the door. They should make this whole like, sort of extra parliament house yeah. where you can just sort of go in there. Old and, parliament house. And oh, exa- There is one, oh, isn't there? Yes. They could send yes. him to old parliament house. You could just run around and litigate. He could sit in the old senate. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Oh. We're going to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, okay, so R- Rod Carlton is, um, is still in his mind... Senator, it's actually quite sad. The senator in exile. Funny. Senator in exile. He doesn't recognise that Western Australia exists as a legal entity or the High Court, and yet, and yet he still is the legal. And yet, also senator. strangely, I don't know how many people saw the Four Corners expose last night on One Nation. He came out as one of the most sympathetic characters of the whole party. Oh, he's lovely. <laughs> like, he's definitely the one that you would most want to have a beer with. Out of all those he things. was also the only one who didn't look like they were about to burst into a show tune. Yeah. Oh, that was a, that was a terrifying stretch of yeah, footage. That, yeah. yeah I, I know what you're talking the, about. The, the, the woman who runs, who ran um, One Nation West Australia... Sang. Also used to run late girls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she sang pretty much her entire interview. She was interview. a showgirl, yeah, she, basically. She, I liked it. She had moxie. Yeah, yeah, a lot of moxie. All right. So, um, basically, I'm gathering, Jacqueline, that the Q Society... It's kind of like um, organisational flypaper for the disturbed. They gathered in, in North Ryde, um, handed you their business cards. Yeah, and, and the, I mean, there were sort of the odd people on my table, um, you know, the odd sort of very intense people, but then the rest You're of the... You're saying part... the rest of the room was normal. <laughs> so it says something about you, Jacqueline, that they said, OK, odd table for her. <laughs> um, yeah, they put the journalists on the odd table. That's um, actually... Well, they would have loved you. If you'd said, I'm a journalist, they'd have been like... Justice! Justice is coming! Yeah, there. There, was a, there was a fair bit of that. I mean, it was pretty obvious that we were not from their, if, their, their um, milieu, if you like. Um, but the rest of the people, I would say, are just, were just very nice, um, you know, suburban, um, slightly elderly people, like the kinds of people who probably listen to Alan Jones or belong to a sure. golf club. Like, well, Kew's a very decent, nice suburb. 
in Melbourne. That's right. Maybe they got confused. Um, but it was, look, it was a really long rambling night. Like, it went on for too long. Um, you know, we were getting resentful about being there. Um, it, you know, Ross Cameron sort of stood up and said all this bizarre stuff about the Sydney Morning Homosexual, and that was just, it was just very odd. I didn't think that I would get a story out of it that, like, to the extent that that story kind of went off. But it was mo- towards the end of the night, everything was getting very dissolute and very messy, and then they decided to do this auction of the um, Larry Pickering cartoons, which were extremely offensive. And I'd already... Wa- I'd done a circuit of the room. I got so sort of traumatised halfway through the night. I was like, I can't believe... This is just hideous. It's so awful. You know, they're saying such horrible things. I went and actually sat in the toilet for a little while and just, like, texted my colleague who was out there, and I was like, I can't go back out there. <laughs> what am I going to do? And I just needed like a the, homemade lanyard to yeah, get yeah, it. I just like that you were hanging out with the toilet in, in preference to hanging out with the other people. Yeah. That should be the slogan of the Q it Society. Was, yeah. Even the toilet is better. You make a good point, Sink. Um, it was safe in there. So when you heard uh, Ross Cameron's um, hilarious comedy routine, did you, did you... I mean, how did the room react? Did you get the sense... They were eating out of his hand. They I mean, it was it. very much his crowd. And in that, in that sort of, he, you know, he made it. He's, I suppose you could say, um, very charismatic in his own way, and he's, you know, very sort of um, loud. And and he was really working the room, and he was talking about his show. You know, his show Outsiders, how it was the highest rating show on Sky. They're on very a Sunday. proud of that. Yeah, <laughs> they're so um, proud of that. Yeah, well, no, the highest rating show on Sky on a Sunday. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's in five figures that <laughs> yeah, show. It's that, huge. That's right. um, Oh, look, the, the pathos is, is considerable. I mean, has people been looking at Mark Latham's Twitter, which suddenly burst into... <laughs> at real Mark Latham. Um, the amount of boasting about the ratings of Outsiders is quite extraordinary. He was saying that it was going to go nightly at, at 6 o'clock. It was going to be... They were going to do, I don't know, show tunes. Uh, the opportunity lost. So they were very proud of it. I don't, still don't quite see how a former Labor leader and a former senior MP counters Outsiders while living off the parliamentary pension, but... And the editor of The Spectator. I mean, let's, you know, these these people are basically fighting their way through the wilderness every day, hacking, hacking their way through... With machetes of truth. (laughs) I'm surprised machetes of truth wasn't the name of the show, actually. So so they're loving this this chat now, because he defended it as a comedy routine. It was all a bit of joke, just a bit of free speech for the kids. Um, How did you feel listening to it? Oh, I, I mean... You, know, you, you I guess you have quite a tough skin as a journalist and you you know you get used to that kind of thing and it's like okay that's the best you can come up with Sydney morning homosexual aren't you hilarious but I mean it's still at the end of the day you've still got a room full of people kind of jeering at you it's you, you do realize that that <laughs> both Herald and homosexual start with letter H yeah it's pretty I know, I know. Pretty good stuff. Oh, oh yeah it's quite clever when you think oh. about it yeah and look you know, Cameron. I don't want to I don't want to play the stereotypes here but there are homosexuals who work at the Herald I'm pretty sure <laughs> Figures. Anyway, um, shining a light. Ross Cameron shining a light on truth. So he there are quite right. a lot of them in the Liberal caucus these days, aren't they? Yeah. They get everywhere, don't they? Um, now, Jacqueline, if I recall, earlier in your, in your storied career at the Herald, you went down and were personally heckled and harassed by Alan Jones. You seem to keep yeah. getting sent to, to meetings of fringe, noxious right-wingers. What is that? What's, what's with that? Um, yeah, girls got to make a buck, I suppose. <laughs> 
how did, I hope you get overtime still. <laughs> well, I still legal. Well, I mean, how did it compare? Is it a similar sort of milieu or not? Well, really? the Alan Jones one was more scary because they were actually like it was almost like a pitchfork wielding situation, and it was me and actually a guy from Dave Lipson who was working at Sky News at the time, and they were sort of really yelling at us, and it, like that was quite an intimidating situation because Alan Jones, I guess, can whip a crowd into a frenzy quite well, mm. and it was a really big crowd, and there was a convoy of no confidence, I think they called it, and it was during the Gillard years, and it was the anti-carbon tax rally and it was quite a febrile environment so that was very unpleasant like I remember having I had like a my body had an anxious response in a yeah, way right. so the adrenaline flooded in can I, can I just ask check it's always interesting because you know you're like especially in prints the reporter's never meant to be part of the story yes. you know you do your best yeah, yeah. to be as objective and an observer when you are thrust into a scenario like that and you're name checked in other media is it yeah. Is part of you going, oh, you know, my name's getting out there, or is it kind of the worst possible outcome? Well, no, you would never want to be part of a story like that at all. Um, not at all. And well, like, particularly if, if it's like the, the bit of the story is Jacqueline Maley almost got beaten to death by a bunch of yeah, mad right wingers. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't like that at all. You, no. <laughs> <laughs> We I would have thought like in certain that. journalistic circles they think you go, girl, like, I'm glad you held your ground and gave, it, gave us good back. Yeah, and I definitely, I remember having a moment, like, with Alan Jones, the reason why he got so angry at me was because I asked um, him if he had taken any money to, if he'd, if he'd taken an appearance fee or a fee to, to um, appear at this rally. But I remember thinking, he's not going to like, I, I was like, I should ask him this. And he's really not going to like it. And I was like, oh, maybe I won't because he'll just go off. And then I was like, no, that's exactly why you should ask it. So I definitely sort of forced myself to do it because I knew that he was going to be pissed off. Um, yeah, so I guess got my just desserts that time, I guess. So you've had... Adelunia. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, though, because since that, I mean, I guess since the Gillard period, we've seen this... Um, kind of alt-right, whatever you want to call them, feral right, really kind of rise up a bit. Certainly One Nation's had them, they were kind of on board the, the Palmer Express for a while there, as strange as that was. It, it seems, I mean, is it just that they're being more reported on? Do, do you feel like it's actually snowballing? I'm keen to know. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a really interesting question because it's not as though Australia's grown a new population or that um, people's um, political leanings, I think, haven't changed. I think that, um, you know, a political population is almost like a person's character in the sense that it's fairly constant but different environmental factors will bring out different things. So um, I guess that's what hap is happening now and I would put it down to, you know, global trends but also just economic insecurity. And I do think that this whole political correctness thing has gone mad kind of thing um, is a very... It's something that does worry a lot of people. I want to ask Chris about this, actually, because the political correctness gone mad um, argument is a really interesting one in terms of what you can say with, with free speech. Now, during our, our time in the comedy trenches, there's certainly been, been moments where we felt the blowtorch of outrage and, and public anger. And it is, it is quite a harsh thing to have to go through. How do you think we're travelling? Have we got to the point where... For instance, legitimate humour is quick to be ruled offside. Look, I, I think so. I think um, people are probably second-guessing themselves a little bit. Um, I, I sort of struggle with this one because I think on the one hand, I, I actually don't love free speech. I'm not one of these advocates of absolute universal free speech. I actually think it's really important to have certain checks um, on making sure hate speech doesn't exist and have a very public platform. Um, Is this political correctness going, going mad? Going mad. Ugh. Yeah. Right before your eyes, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Um, 
So I, I, you know, I'm sure you were the same, Dom, like when the Charlie Hebdo thing came out, everyone just expected us to sort of be hugely supportive of Charlie Hebdo, and while we obviously condemned the attacks and thought that was a, um, a huge tragedy, as someone who was quite well acquainted with the Charlie Hebdo magazine, I really didn't like it. I, um, I thought it was, because their whole raison d'etre was absolute free speech. In a way, they were the left's version of Andrew Bolt, because they wanted absolute free speech, and it was an ugly, witless magazine. They were always painting Obama as a Sambo sort of Negro. They were always, you know, famously showing Muhammad, and there was not a lot of uh, wit, as I'd call it, or, or humour. It was just shock for shock's sake, free speech for free speech's sake. And I... I'm Downright leakian, you might say. Yeah, well, a little bit. But getting back to the, what you're more asking about is with comedy. Look, um, I, think, I think comedians are actually... The, the biggest challenge I think comedians are sort of confronting, certainly in America, is that we've got this situation with Trump, which is such a sort of... I mean, he's already quite farcical. So it's, on the one hand, there's a, there's a creative challenge for comedians to sort of find a, a satirical exaggeration where the reality is already so absurd. Yeah, how do you parody the hair? It's, it's already a yeah. ridiculousness, for instance. Um, that's one problem. Another problem, um, and this is just a really technical, basic thing, is that just a lot, you're competing with a lot more people as a comedian now. In the old days, um, there weren't many people who had a platform to be funny and sort of told jokes either on a stage or on radio or on TV. <laughs> Now with YouTube and Twitter and all these, like everyone's funny. It was a closed <laughs> shop, wasn't it? It was and, wonderful. And, and now um, there's it, like there's Trump, there's Sean Spicer. Yeah. There's... So uh, you know your, your Pickerings and um, anyone in making a weekly comedy show these days have the really serious challenge of being last to the party because everyone on Twitter's already sort of dived in on the news of the day and got in first. So you've got to come up with a really, really good or at least novel original take on a story to be relevant in weekly topical turnaround comedy. To get to your actual question though, which is about... Um, <laughs> this, is, this is very, um, very Trump era. <laughs> Any time. Do you guys ever, I mean, I'm interested as well, do you ever um, think of a joke and think, no, I can't say that? I couldn't possibly oh, the, say that. The, oh, God, yeah, yeah. If there were a microphone in the writer's room, but, I think our because, career would have been five seconds. Because it doesn't pass the quality test, because it's, not, because it's in poor taste, why? Well, look, there, there are some who believe that, that um, comedy should be completely unfiltered and uh, RIP Bill Leak. But the, the bottom line is you need to be comfortable saying in public what you're saying. And a lot of the jokes we share with our friends, and this comes back to that Barry Spur thing where he was sent exchanging emails with a friend and they got leaked and they were terribly embarrassing. We've all, perhaps we haven't, maybe it's just me, but we make jokes, we make jokes with our friends and in the era of Google Chat, there are digital records of these things. Um, but, you know, what you say in that private environment, you, you, it's funny because it crosses the line. It's funny because it's something you wouldn't say in public. So what you say in public is filtered by some degree. You've got to own it. And I think the thing we always felt with The Chaser was, um, we didn't always do this, but I think we did most of the time. If you're going to make a joke, you kind of have to be prepared to, to, to live or die on it. If it's the joke where, where everyone gets angry with you, you want to at least feel like it was a good joke to begin with. Yeah, yeah I think it's fair to say we were always very happy to be offensive. Um, we didn't seek, we didn't set out to be offensive, but if offence was the result, we wouldn't regard that as a failure. But if, if unfunniness was the result, you would. And um, no, of course you censor yourself. Um, but they're normally comedy calls or, or I guess political calls. Um, you know, we, 
you know, we were very sensitive and mindful of being um, an all-male writing team. So I think we probably did have a different set of guidelines when it came to joking about Gillard compared to someone else about how that would look. The main rule, and I'm sure everyone's heard the phrase, is um, as long as you're punching upwards, not down. And we would have got this wrong at times. I'm sure we did. Um, good comedians are always testing the fault lines. I think a good comedian should actually be seen where the fault lines of society are and, and if you're probing them you will overstep every now and then you just will and you own that you wear it you kind of learn and reset your parameters but i also think it's like no one has a right in in a society to not be offended um that that's just not a constitutional right anyone has and good comedy should challenge should provoke but it's got to be make if, if you're in the business of satire it does have to it's just better it's just a better look if you're punching upwards. Because the minute, let's say, um, and this, is, this has happened a lot. So we did jokes on CNN and N in the aftermath of the Bali bombings, which is obviously a very sensitive area. And we put, I can't remember these jokes. Right. They stand up to we 15 put, years later. We were kind of, I mean, the, the trick of that show and where we got away with a lot of quite black material was it was always sort of framed as media satire. So we felt very comfortable doing jokes about excessive media coverage of the Bali bombings or media hyperbole. And we felt, I felt confident, I think the others would have, that we, it wasn't a joke at the victim's expense. But if that line ever gets a bit grey, um, then you've lost. So you kind of need to be very clear, you're making fun of how, then Howard's response or the media's response and not the incident itself. As I said, we haven't always got it right. Um, and I don't think we'll ever get it completely right because I think the minute you're... And this does go back to your question. The minute you're always censoring yourself so you never fuck up again, I think you may as well give up. Because I like to think I'll fuck up again because it means I'm still interested in where the boundaries are. And where. Yeah. Oh, and you're especially really now bad. at this time, and we have a genuine climate at the moment where this very debate is, is actually a good topic for satire. Mm. Like, I mean, speech for, for reasons that I'm not entirely sure why in America and the UK and here and in, all over the world, really has become a very ripe topic, and, it's, um, and it is an interesting topic. Um, I've, I've got a, a piece coming out in the Sydney Morning Homosexual on Saturday, <laughs> um, where I, I spoke to a bunch of, of satirists about how they are doing comedy now, uh, particularly in the age of Trump. And it is, uh, like Charlie Pickering sort of made, made the point that it is extremely hard to find the absurdity in something when it is itself so absurd. And Dan, Dan Illick, who, who, friend of the show, he had a fantastic uh, story which he told in, in, a, in uh, a piece he wrote for The Walkley, where he had done a... He'd written a sketch just after uh, uh, Trump's inauguration about how now the Ku Klux Klan could, like, you know, demonstrate in public without being ashamed. And this, and this was kind of a, a satirical piece that he'd gotten as far as starting to film. And then word came through that in North Carolina, there was an actual demonstration by the Ku Klux Klan openly in the streets without their hoods. And he was like, okay, that's actually funnier than what I was writing. <laughs> so, it's, so again, it's that thing of, that we, we, we are in a weird time where so many of the things that under normal circumstances you would think, well, we can make fun of this, are so so much weirder than than yeah. they've ever been and also i mean one, one of the things which which pickering actually and another friend of the show mr uh, mark humphreys 
was saying about their comedy is that a lot of the time what they're doing is kind of distilling the absurdity into the actual... into talking about what's going on in a way of almost... rather than finding the news and making it absurd, it's looking at the absurdity and trying to work out what the news is. Yeah, I I think, I mean, in one sense, in a very literal sense, Trump is a gift. I mean, he is a buffoon. And, And so... The jokes do kind of write themselves, but that goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think you need to be clever and smarter as a comedian that you're not just doing the obvious jokes. Well, that's what and The Onion is struggling with at the moment. Yeah, but they I, just don't well, know no, how to make jokes it. about it. But what you're saying, I think, is true. Like, the, real, the really good examples of American satire at the moment are shows like uh, the John Oliver program last week tonight. And, and he's not afraid to sort of put the jokes to one side and do the, do the job that the news should... I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of journalists are doing excellent work in the age of Trump while they're all trying to work with a very uncharted environment about them being accused of having zero credibility and veracity. So they're kind of... They've been disoriented. And a comedian can sometimes navigate these unusual uncharted waters maybe a bit better because they already live in the same world as what Trump's craziness is. So... But, yeah, thank God for people like Oliver that is distilling the madness um, through a, a serious prism rather than a purely comedic one. I don't know. I mean, that said, if you look back at the really good periods for satirical comedy, I think here during the Howard period it was great. Never better than Abbott. I mean, that was... He was just... I, you, you could exaggerate, and it was funny. Um, SNL's been amazing over the past year. Colbert is outrating Jimmy Fallon, who now seems irrelevant. I mean, last year when Obama was there, everyone was happy to go and see celebrities playing, you know, beer pong. Now it seems completely irrelevant, and Colbert's really found his feet. Well, you're absolutely right, and this is true of the the straight news media as well as the late-night shows. All of their ratings are up. Trump has been very good for business because... Great for the failing New York Times, too, by the way. Their subscriptions are booming! I mean, he's the only story in town, and what a story. I mean, it really is good copy, and I think... Yeah, the comedians have realised that that is the story. So rather than do, you know, Kardashian jokes, Trump, you know, who was a reality star himself, let's not forget, that is their main fodder. And those shows are very politicised. And, um, and, yeah, as I say, all the newspapers now are actually... Their circulation's increased. Yeah. Because the, of the very the man who's trying to accuse and, them of having no credibility. Yeah, the Washington Times, I believe, are now profitable for the first time in 25 years or something. Washington Post. The, Washington the Times Post, is... Uh, Washington Homosexual, I think. Washington yeah. Homosexual, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's easy for you. So, all right, well, to, to bring it back to Australia, I mean, I think it's interesting um, looking at our local right, and there was such a stoush to be the Australian Trump, and, and Latham clearly thinks he's on to something. Pauline Hanson thinks she's on to something. You know, Corey Bernardi, briefly... That reaction is, yeah, that's... Got any Australian Conservatives fans in? Yeah, look, I, I think... I, a, I'm with you. I am 100% I just did that thing where you drink the... <laughs> the mere mention of Corey Bernardi. That was the sound of a puffed-up balloon being let out of gas very quickly. But, I mean... I, Six years, my friend. Six years in the Senate. It's lovely to have Corey Bernardi's son in tonight, so yeah. it's great. <laughs> I, but I, I feel... I mean, I kind of maintain that we aren't like America, that this is a niche thing that's going on. And I think what we've seen in WA, I'm hoping, confirms that, that we aren't, you know, quite that far out that when the WA Liberals started doing deals with One Nation, they killed themselves. Jacqueline, how do you see this? Someone who writes a lot about politics. How big is the right here? Bearing in mind that the polls say, amazingly, that Bill Shorten's going to win. I mean, who would have thought that without him doing the numbers beforehand? (laughs) 
Um, look, I think it's too much too early to write off One Nation. Um, I think they're doing a very good job of it themselves. Admittedly, yeah. they, they seem to be yeah. working actively toward writing themselves <laughs> With off. With stolen car keys at various points in time, writing their expenses off at any rate. Buying lovely, lovely planes. <laughs> um, yeah, well, this is, I mean, that's also the interesting thing about the one the Four Corners report last night. I mean, parties like One Nation, and you know, you could say the, the Trump administration as a whole just don't respect institutions. They they're, they're, they're disruptors, as they like to call themselves, and their most their biggest disruption is that they don't like institutions and um, they don't have any respect for institutions. So it's no surprise that you know One Nation doesn't have, or you know, people within One Nation allegedly have no respect for the institution of declaring one's expenses and of complying <laughs> with that whole regime. Um, but yeah, as you question, I think it's too early to write off One Nation. I think that um, the divergence um, from the two-party system is real, and I don't see that either of the parties are doing anything major to address what is a very fundamental um, and widespread disillusionment. And the disillusionment's there for a reason. I guess the other factor in this is with the Trump phenomenon, and tell me if you disagree, it wasn't really just a rejection of liberalism, it was a rejection of establishment politics. Yeah. I think Trump spoke to a lot of people because even though he was running for one of the major parties, he and, didn't and really speak for them always. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do wonder in Australia if there's that same kind of intensely embedded disaffection um, out there with party politics, but also with... I, I, assume, I assume there is, but, but I, also Corey with Bernardi the idea... Yes. I agree with Cory Bernardi's son, I think, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who better, really? Can we call him that Rory Bernardi? That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's this other theory that it's sort Not of sorry. this disaffection isn't as sophisticated as just rejecting politics. It's people who are gradually seeing the rise of liberalism sort of introduce making mainstream things like gender equality, LGBT, trans, uh, all of this stuff, and they kind of feel what's happened to that world that we mm. white men once owned. They feel very threatened by that. Mm. And they do want to claim it back. So making America great again is more about making it back like the old days yeah. when patriarchy ruled. And I think that is quite a powerful force in a lot of people who you never see on blogs or never see on Twitter, but they really do feel this. Mark yeah. Latham, done this today. You know, I had a go. Neil Mitchell had a go. Just two, you know, two people exchanging blows the way it's supposed to be, like it used to be. And the subject's that two white guys doing their white guy stuff, you know, without any of this snowflake bullshit creeping in. Although, I mean, one of the, the, the things that I find fascinating about Australia's sort of hard right compared to, say, the US's hard right is that it's not evangelical. Like, there, there's... Uh, in, in David Marr's uh, piece on, on One Nation in the, in the quarterly essay... Um, <clears throat> pardon me, elitist, pardon me. <laughs> I, ivory Tower book learning. <laughs> Um, but, you know, he, he digs pretty deep into who the One Nation voter is. And yeah. one, of, one of the interesting things was that, you know, they tend to be not especially well-educated, but they're people who have, you know, generally made, you know, made a good fist of things. I think they're, you'll yeah, find they're, Malcolm they're Roberts is pretty good on climate science, mate. He's yeah. very yeah. evidence. Yeah, he's, he's a seer, but also, but they're not religious. Like they, you, they, we don't have that kind of. Um, but they, they're, they're like Pauline yeah, yeah, yeah. Hanson herself. They pull, they pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Mm. And one of the things that I find most fascinating about Pauline Hanson is her, um, 
hatred or her um, her persecution, you might say, of single mothers, and she was a single mother herself. And she is always, you know, the, that sort of men's rights activist, um, you know, the family court's broken kind of, um, you know, and single mothers get too much welfare is like a sort of tranche of her policy suite, um, which I find amazing, given that she was a single mother. I think she had two sets of kids to different fathers. I'm not exactly sure, but... Um, she did it on her own, you know. She she worked hard. She didn't get any help from the government. Except she, for know. the funding from about ten elections she ran for. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but when she was coming that through, was, true. That welfare, that, yeah. that, that tax It was the deep fryer that, that made her But, but I, th- I think that's a really important part of the psychology of, of Hanson and Hanson voters. Like, nobody helped us. You know, we did it on our own. Nobody helped us. Why should anyone else get any help? It was fascinating. I don't know how many people saw the, the Four Corners piece last night, but... You know, they went deep into the sort of rural Queensland towns oh, of Malcolm Roberts. That was pretty scary. Yeah, it's where yeah. you sort of got to meet the voters and they were all going, oh, we don't want any immigrants. And previously, the shot had been of the street completely empty. They had a population. There was no one there. Um, they've never met an immigrant. So it's the people who are most against migration, the people who've never met one. And it's the same as, um, you know, Jackie Lambie, who's sort of the big anti... That's her big crusade in Parliament is anti-Muslim. And Tasmania's Muslim population, I've looked it up once, like it's smaller than obviously all of the other states, you know... But they could combined. stand to expand their gene pool down there, couldn't they? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, well, and well, maybe I, that's I the problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe all of these people, when they say immigrants, what they mean is tigers. And someone's just got to sort of show them a picture. They go, oh, no, yeah, the stripy ones. Yeah, we don't want them. They're, they're dangerous. They eat people. They do. Yeah, I am sure. They can swim. I would, I would eat my hat if there they was can. a single Muslim family in Burnie, you know, which is where from Jackie Lambie is from. So that tells you something in itself, that the menace or the fear is an, an imagined or a fictional one. It's not one that's present. And, ma- and maybe that's the issue, because I think they always say that the best way to cure a racist is just to introduce him to someone of a race he or she doesn't like. Because often it, it is a position of ignorance and lack of exposure. And the, all these sort of very white regional towns that are dying in Australia and doing it tough are, uh, yeah, they actually could benefit not only from an industry point of view from an injection of migration, but also their, I don't know, maybe their politics might um, be a little bit more tolerant. But it's also that thing that I think Jaws taught us which is that if you want to be scared of something, you don't show it for the first two acts. So, that's a tiger in, in Jaws, right? Yeah. T- tiger shark, yeah. It's all fun. So there you have it, the Double Decisionist, live at Giant Dwarf in Redfern on the 4th of April. If you want to join us on the 2nd of May, jump onto giantdwarf.com.au. Tickets will be on sale, 20 bucks or 15 for concessions. Hope to see you there, or indeed on this podcast next week.